Tommy's talking about the we, we versus I, forgot to remind me of uh, uh, back in Houston when I was preaching at Fleetwood in Houston, one of the elders there who's, uh, who has passed away now, he was pretty handy with a lot of things and he was over at the house helping me put, uh, well, let me rephrase that, I was watching him put a garage door opener in for me. <laughs> And uh, <laughs> at one point, he did need me to do something. And so he said, Jim, would you take that screwdriver and just kind of put some pressure on that wire right there in that little uh, opening right there? And so I did, and it went on down. I put too much pressure, and obviously it um, wasn't a good thing. And so he said, oh, well, he was very calm, but he got his son on the phone and called him and said, Steve, um, he needed some input. He said, Steve, we've... Uh, we broke this wire here, and I said, no, Johnny, don't say that, say I. And he said, no, no, Jim, we're a team, we're a team. <laughs> that, that was his phrase, we're a team, we're a team, we did, we did this. <laughs> but uh, we are a team here at White Oak, <laughs> and uh, we are the, the Lord's team, the Lord's army, uh, the Lord's people, and certainly uh, Janice and I are blessed to be a part of uh, the family of God here, and we love and appreciate all of you. We are studying the book of Thessalonians, the first epistle of, the, of Paul to the Thessalonians, that is. There were two that he wrote, and not only is it the first epistle to the Thessalonians, but it is uh, the first epistle that Paul himself wrote. Written about A.D. 52 or A.D. 53, as we pointed out last week as we began this series, and uh, written from the city of Corinth after he had uh, uh, received uh, word that uh, things were going well in Thessalonica, that the church was doing well there. It's probably about six months after the time that, that uh, the church was started there. And for that, we go back to uh, Acts chapter 17 to see the uh, background of the establishment of the church. And it was established there uh, in much affliction, uh, as is referred to here. In, uh, in this epistle. Uh, there was a great deal of persecution, as you recall, from the Jews at Thessalonica uh, as Paul came there. And so these who had obeyed the gospel uh, did not have a bed of roses even from day one as they uh, embraced the gospel of Christ. And so Paul was so pleased to hear the report that was brought to him that the church at Thessalonica was strong. In fact, what we're about to read tonight as we continue with verse 6, and that's where we stopped at, verse, at the end of verse 5 last time, what we're about to read in the last few verses of this chapter is really one of the, one of the greatest commendations, one of the greatest commendations that one could ever read about a congregation of God's people. It's a commendation that, um, that we ought to seek to uh, to emulate, that is, the kind of situation that brought forth this kind of commendation is the kind of situation that we ought to always strive to be in as a congregation of God's people. So that, in effect, Paul could say, if he were writing to the church at White Oak today, that he could say uh, the same things to us that he said uh, to the Thessalonican church, to the church at at Thessalonica. And Thessalonica was an important city in, uh, in Macedonia, and uh, center, they were a center of commerce, and so we're going to see from this commendation that certainly they took full advantage of their position geographically, and that 
those who traveled into Thessalonica, because it was a great center of commerce, and those who traveled from Thessalonica after their conversion to Christ, didn't go silently. They went and sounded forth the gospel of Christ. And their faith preceded them. Wherever they went and wherever Paul went, the faith of the Thessalonians preceded them. Let's read verses 6 through 10 and then deal with them individually. Paul writes, And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction, with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. As we said, this is one of the greatest commendations that one could ever read concerning a congregation of God's people. He says to them here, you became followers. You became followers. That's how the New King James translates that word. They, the word in some translations, including the American Standard Translation, the translation is imitators. You became imitators. An imitator may be a little stronger uh, word. In fact, if you look at the original language and you see that word, memetes, memetes, it gives you some idea of, uh, of where we no doubt get our word mimic. Mimetes, mimicking, mimicking. Uh, and someone who mimics someone uh, seeks to do so in a way so that you have no doubt about uh, who is being mimicked. In other words, if he's a good mimic, he's going, to, uh, he's going to do such a good job that you have no question about what he's doing or who he is mimicking. That's the idea here of this. It's the idea of, of not being casual followers or seeking to or of seeking to be somewhat like uh, the Lord, or somewhat like uh, those who had brought them the gospel of Christ, but to be imitators of them. And notice, there are two, two who are mentioned here. Followers or imitators of us, that is, Paul and, and uh, Silas and Timothy, from whom this epistle had come, but specifically the apostle Paul, of course, too, the apostle. You became what? imitators of us, but also and of the Lord, obviously. And so it is not the case that he was saying, you imitated us as some great people who were your uh, teachers, although they did bring them the gospel, and Paul brought them the gospel. But remember in 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 1, Paul to the church at Corinth there wrote, be imitators of me as I also am of Christ. And that's the same word that is used here, translated followers, in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, it's the same word in the original, be imitators of me, but he also adds, as I also am of Christ. Follow me as I follow Christ. And so what he is saying here is you became imitators of not us as some great people to whom you looked and to whom you uh, um, gave your allegiance, because you remember that Paul elsewhere wrote to the Corinthian church, you've got a problem there at Corinth with some who were elevating men above 
uh, Christ and who were following Paul and Cephas and and uh, some were saying, I am of Paul, I am of Cephas, I am of Christ. Is Christ divided, he asked? Was Paul crucified for you? So he's not exalting himself as someone who's worthy of emulation as, as some great uh, person. But he's saying, you followed our way of life. You followed us as we followed Christ. You followed our way of life. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. And that commendation really becomes an admonition, does it not, to all of us. If he commends them for being imitators of their way of life and of the Lord, then he is admonishing us at the same time to do the same today as Christians. We are to be imitators of the Lord. You know, there's another example of, of this idea of imitating in 1 Peter 2 and verse 21. And we've talked about it when we studied 1 Peter uh, not long ago. But in 1 Peter 2.21, you remember, there Peter wrote to the Christians and to us, of course, for to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example. That word example there is not the same word as imitate here, but it is nonetheless an admonition to follow the clear example that Christ has said. In fact, in 1 Peter 2.21, that word example is used there and nowhere else. It is never used anywhere else in the New Testament. And as we talked about it before, it is an example that is, uh, is indicative of the writing at the top of the page. And I mentioned, I think, when we studied 1 Peter that I remember in the third grade, uh, in the classroom where I was a third grader, you had the cursive letters uh, on the blackboard that were a part of the blackboard itself. And you went up to the blackboard and you could look at the A and the B and you could write right under those letters to imitate to the fullest extent possible that cursive writing. Well, that's literally the meaning of that word example in 1 Peter 2.21. Jesus is the writing at the top of the page that we are to imitate as closely as possible. And though it is a different word in the original, the idea here in verse 7 of 1 Thessalonians 1 is the same idea in the sense that we're to be mimics, if you were. We are to imitate the Lord. We are to be imitators of the Lord. He's the perfect model. He's the perfect model. In fact, in Ephesians 5 and verse 1, the Apostle Paul there admonishes the Ephesians, Be ye therefore imitators of God as dear children. Same word as is used here in 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 7. Be imitators of God as dear children. If you're the children of God, you imitate the Father. You follow Him to the closest possible extent that you can. Well, doesn't that tell us that casual service a lackadaisical approach to Christianity has no, has no place in the life of one who claims to be a follower of God. It is an all-or-nothing situation. It is not a nominal service that we can seek to offer God and be pleasing. We are to be imitators of God. We're to be as God-like as we can possibly be. Well, that takes some effort, doesn't it? And you don't, you don't achieve that Goal, and obviously you're not going to be uh, perfect, uh, sinless, but you don't, you don't even get close to that goal of being imitators of God and achieving that goal without diligent effort, without diligent effort, and without application of oneself. And so the Thessalonians had been applying themselves to being imitators of 
the lifestyle that Paul had set before them and the others who were with him, and obviously of the Lord himself. But when did all that begin? You've got a perfect tense here in verse 6, having received. You became imitators or followers of us and of the Lord, having received. Looking back at the point in time when they became imitators, which was when? When you received the word. What is it that launches, uh, that launches us on a course of imitating God? What is it that launches us on a course of being the imitators of, of the Lord Jesus Christ? It is what? Obedience to the gospel. From day one of our obedience to the gospel, that's when we seek to imitate God and Christ from that time forward. And hopefully we never look back once we begin that course. Thanks be to God that if we do fall, we can turn and we can change and we can come back. But ideally what we want to do from day one of our obedience to the word of God is to launch forth to be imitators. And it also reminds us, does it not, when he says you became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word, does it not also say that it is the word of God and only the word of God that we need to be able to enable us to launch our path to be imitators of God and to continue to be imitators of God? What more do we need to achieve the goal of seeking to imitate God? What more do we need other than the word of God? We don't. We don't need anything else. That's the source, that's the source of our strength that enables us to achieve what God would have us achieve. But notice this, having received the word, that's when it began for you, he says at Thessalonica, but you received that word in much affliction. And again, that gets back to what we alluded to a few moments ago, that when Paul came to Thessalonica in, uh, in Acts chapter 17, there were those who rose up against him. There were those who, who persecuted him. And uh, obviously that persecution, uh, as that riot took place in, in Thessalonica, and um, when the Jews were so intense on, intent on, uh, on persecuting him and Paul moved on, do you think the persecution against the church that Paul established there stopped at that point in time? Of course not. And so he is saying here as he writes to them, you receive the word in much affliction. And there's something to be said for that because, again, it demonstrates how powerful that word was. That even in the face of affliction, these who obeyed the gospel at Thessalonica understood that it was worth whatever they had to endure in order to embrace the all-sufficient, all-powerful gospel of Christ. And it should say to us today that whatever affliction may come our way, it is worth that and anything we would be called upon to suffer in order to enjoy the blessings of being Christians and to have the Word of God living and abiding in us. And then he adds, with joy of the Holy Spirit. Having received the Word in much affliction, with joy of the Holy Spirit. Is the Holy Spirit producing any joy in you and in me as Christians today? Of course He is. How is He doing that? He's doing that through the all-sufficient Word. He's not doing it through some direct miraculous manifestation of Himself. But nonetheless, do we not experience the joy of the Holy Spirit today? Did we not experience that joy of the Holy Spirit when we obeyed the gospel?
How so? Because it was the Holy Spirit through whom and by whom we learned what to do to obey the gospel. It's the Holy Spirit who gave us the Word, and it's the Word that told us what to do to become Christians. And once we obeyed that Word and became Christians, what kind of emotion did that produce within us? Joy. Remember the eunuch after Philip preached Jesus to him, and he said, See, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? And he said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And they went down into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him, and they came up out of the water. And the eunuch went on his way, what? Rejoicing. The joy of the Holy Spirit. That is, the Spirit's teaching produced within the eunuch and every other convert to Christianity in the early church and every convert to Christianity today. The Holy Spirit produces an unspeakable joy and a peace that surpasses all understanding. How? Through some direct, better felt than told way? No. Through the Word of God, the sword of the Spirit, which has produced within every child of God a joy that is incomparable and a joy that cannot be taken away from us as long as we are in the Lord. As Paul reminds us in the Philippian letter more than once, we can do what in the Lord? Rejoice in the Lord because we know by the Holy Spirit's teaching that we are in the Lord and therefore we have that joy today. The word was received by these Thessalonians in much affliction and it produced within them, because it was the product of the Holy Spirit, great joy. And then what happened? Verse 7, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. You became wonderful examples to all the other Christians and to those who were influenced to become Christians. You became examples to all in Macedonia, that's the northern part of Greece at the time, at this time, and Achaia was the ancient name for ancient Greece, uh, specifically the southern half of Greece. So you had Macedonia in the north, Achaia in the uh, southern part at that time of what is now just simply uh, Greece and not Achaia there. But you became examples, and that word examples is an interesting word. It's the word from which we get the idea of types and antitypes in Scripture. Uh, the type that Moses was of Christ from the Old Testament. Uh, the type that the temple and the tabernacle served to the church. They were types of the church. They were, they were patterns or foretold or foreshadowed uh, the coming. That's the idea here of type, uh, the word that is translated example, or a pattern. The idea of stamping something with an imprint and it becoming a pattern, a pattern. You became a model, in other words. You became a pattern. My late father-in-law was a pattern maker and he had uh, foundry pattern service. And I can remember being down at his shop years and years ago and he was, uh, he was making a, a door for an army tank, for a tank for the army. And I think at that time, the, as I saw it, it was still in its wooden uh, form and it had been uh, made by a pattern maker and then ultimately it would get into a more permanent form. I know nothing about pattern making. Some of you probably know a lot more than I do, but ultimately it would get into a pattern from which door after door after door after door would be made. 
And he was making the pattern that would then be taken and used to make door after door after door, all of which would be what? Hopefully the very same and would be made according to the pattern that Richie made there at the shop. That's the very idea of the word example here. The stamp or the imprint, the model or the pattern from which others can be made. In this case, the pattern, the pattern was the Thessalonian church. What a commendation, as we said earlier. What a commendation that Paul would say, you are a pattern. You can be imitated, you can be followed as a pattern by all who are in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. And if they will simply do as you are doing, act as you are acting, think as you are thinking, then they're going to be pleasing to God. What a commendation. And what a commendation that's worthy of our emulation. You became examples or a pattern to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. How did they do that, Paul? Verse 8 gives us some insight into that. For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth. When you hear that phrase, sounded forth, what do you think about? Probably something like a trumpet. And that's the idea here. It has sounded forth as a clear and clarion call. Loud and clear. And we do find the figure of trumpets used uh, in Scripture from Old Testament to New as the, uh, uh, the sound that went forth. They were literal trumpets in the Old Testament to signify certain things and the beginning of certain festivals under the Old uh, Law. And of course the trumpets were uh, used to, uh, to sound the call to war. In fact, the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul, uh, alludes to that in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 as he's discussing uh, speaking in tongues and being understood and speaking in a language that somebody can translate so that people understand. And he uses an example there in 1 Corinthians 14, 7 and 8, when he says, Even things without life, whether flute or harp, when they make a sound, unless they make a distinction in the sounds, how will it be known what is piped or played? For if the trumpet makes an uncertain sound, who will prepare for battle? There was a certain sound that the trumpet made when it was a battle sound, and if it were uncertain, the troops wouldn't have any idea that it was a call to battle. In other words, a certain sound. Interesting, as you go back to Isaiah chapter 58, in chapter, eight, uh, chapter 58 and verse 1, there in terms of crying out for God's rebellious people, the prophet, the prophet wrote, cry aloud, spare not, lift up your voice like a trumpet, tell my people their transgression, God says through the prophet, and the house of Jacob their sins. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. And that's the suggestion here in, uh, in this passage here. You, from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth loud and clear like a trumpet that has gone forth. And we do not want to make uncertain sounds when it comes to the gospel, do we? We want to make sure that the gospel goes out in clear, unmistakable terms. But the word of the Lord had sounded forth not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but now he says, but also in every place, even beyond Macedonia and Achaia. Uh, the word has gone forth through what? Through their influence. 
and perhaps through their voluntary missionary efforts. Paul doesn't make it clear as to uh, what all is involved here, but certainly the kind of people we know these Thessalonian Christians to have been, do you not think they would have made some voluntary conscious efforts to get the word spread? But also, as we said earlier, as Christian merchants from Thessalonica would go to other places, did they go silently or did they go seeking to spread the gospel? The answer is obvious from the commendation that Paul is giving to these people here. And that tells us something very important. As we go, wherever we go, we need to go with the gospel. And we need to look for opportunities. We need to look for open doors to be able to influence others with the word. But certainly as we go, they need to see something in us by our lives that is very different from most of the people they encounter in this world today. They need to see that there's something different about those who are members of the White Oak Congregation, that is, those who are members of the body of Christ. And that is, they see that we're not like the world. That's what Paul is writing here and commending these people. He's saying that your influence, your example, and certainly, obviously they would, by word of mouth, send forth the word in clear terms. And their faith has gone out, he says, so that we do not need to say anything. We do not need to say anything. How had their faith gone out? Had they simply spread the word to others by saying, now, you've been here in Thessalonica, would you mind telling others about our faith when you, uh, when you travel? No, that wasn't it. It wasn't a word of mouth uh, spreading of, about what we say we believe. It was their action that they demonstrated that was seen by others that was spread by others. Paul says, so much so that we didn't need to say anything. Before we could tell anybody about you, they were telling us about you. That, in effect, is what he's saying. In other words, you have been that kind of active congregation. And that's what he says in verse 9. For they themselves, indicating, I think, the people with whom Paul had come in contact, they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you. In other words, they, they are... They are, in effect, demonstrating by what they are saying about your actions that our manner of entry to you was not in vain, that you turned to God from idols. Think about that. Think about again what that says about the power of the gospel. It says that most of these who comprised the Thessalonian church were Gentiles. Most of them were Gentiles who had been pagan idolaters. How much influence did idolatry have in the Grecian world? Well, you had Mount Olympus that was on the border between Macedonia and Achaia, ancient, uh, the ancient name for Greece. You had Mount Olympus that was on the border of those two areas. And according to Greek myth, that's where all the Greek gods resided, on Mount Olympus. So they were right in the midst of idolatry, steeped in idolatry and false gods. And yet, when they heard the gospel of Christ, it had the kind of power that produced in them a complete turning as they turned away from those idols to do what? Sit and wait and do nothing. No, 
They turned from God, from the false gods, to God, from idols, to do what? To serve the living and true God. What a contrast between the false gods of these pagan Gentiles and the living and true God to whom they had turned. But they turned to him to do what for him? To serve. To serve. And that's obviously the lesson we need to make sure we never lose sight of is that as we have turned from sin and turned to God, we have become the servants of God. But notice there are two verbs here, to serve and then verse 10, to wait. To serve and to wait for his son from heaven. So we are to wait while we serve. But waiting while we serve doesn't mean being inactive because you can't be serving and be inactive. But what does the waiting mean? Well, the idea here of waiting is a word that indicates eagerly waiting with an increasing intensity as you think about the hope that is getting closer and closer to becoming a reality. Eagerly waiting. It's, it's very much the idea of Paul's words in the letter to Titus. In Titus chapter 2, at verse 13 specifically there, you remember... There in verse 11, he said, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly and righteously and godly in the present age. Then verse 13, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Looking for, looking for. That's anticipation. And that's the same idea here as waiting in verse 10 of 1 Thessalonians 1. Waiting, yes, but waiting with what? Waiting with eyes toward heaven, as it were. Waiting with anticipation. Waiting with intensity that increases every day. Why? Because we think the Lord is going to come back before we die? No, not necessarily. We don't know when He's coming back. But we, we know this. Every day I live, I'm closer. I'm closer to seeing Him whether he returns to this earth before I die or not. It could be thousands, if not millions of years from now that the Lord comes again. We don't know. We may be gone from this earth a long time before the Lord ever comes, but am I still to wait for him as though he could come at any time? Well, of course, because he could. And even if he doesn't, I am going to die. If he doesn't come first, I'm going to die, and so are you. So every day that we wait and he does not come is still a day we're closer to death and therefore closer to home. And so there's an eagerness, an intensity that increases as we move toward that point in time when time is no more for us. And that's the attitude that we should have. Not just waiting, but waiting. <laughs> waiting. Eagerly anticipating that reunion. As we enjoy our lives here, our relationships here, yes. But as we understand, there's something far greater to come, far more blessed that awaits us. And that is His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from what? From the wrath to come.
And that reminds us, as we close our lesson tonight, that the wrath is coming. The Lord is coming, yes. And when the Lord comes, wrath will come. Not for those who eagerly wait for His return, faithfully awaiting His return, living faithfully for Him. No, no wrath for them. But as Paul wrote in the second Thessalonian letter, for those who are troubled and who are faithful, there will be rest when the Lord comes from heaven with His mighty angels. But what about all the others? The next verse there continues, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting punishment from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. That's the wrath to come upon those who will be punished when He comes in that day, as Paul continues in that second letter, to be glorified in His saints and to be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you, he said, was believed. Do you believe that testimony tonight? Have you expressed that belief in that testimony tonight by obedience to the gospel? If not, we plead with you to do so, to avoid the wrath to come and to enjoy the joy that the teaching of the Holy Spirit can bring you this very night as you obey the gospel that the Holy Spirit has revealed through His Word. Believing that Jesus is the Christ, repenting of your sins, confessing Him to be the Christ, and being buried with Him in baptism for the remission of sins. That's how you experience the joy of the Holy Spirit, by obeying His teaching and knowing the joy that comes from being forgiven of every sin. And if you have known that joy but have forsaken that joy through a life that is being lived apart from God or in disobedience to God, then come home to your first love in repentance, confession of sin if it needs to be confessed in a public way, and experience again the joy that you once felt, the peace that you once knew, as those who truly can eagerly await the coming of the Lord or the day of death, whichever occurs first, knowing full well that for you who are faithful, the wrath to come will not be a wrath that you will experience, but rather the rest for the troubled. As we stand to sing, will you come?